Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he'll return to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We are spending five Sundays looking at biblical justice. This is our second Sunday. And we began last Sunday with God. That justice is part of his nature. Always start with God. Any biblical subject always starts with God, always moves through God, and always keeps us coming back to God. So we started there, and now we come to the psalm of praise, Psalm 146, the psalm of praise to God for his justice. That God does justly for those who need it most. And in the Bible, uh, that's a number of people, but uh, there's this, uh, as one scholar calls it, a quartet of the vulnerable. And so what you get repeated over and over again are the most vulnerable people in need of justice are the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, which is just another word for immigrant, and the poor. And we have them here in Psalm 146. There are others, but these four are often named. Again, uh, the quartet of the vulnerable. We'll use that throughout this series. These, the widow, the orphan, called the fatherless here in verse 9, uh, the sojourner, the poor, which is kind of a catch-all category, but uh, these are each and all easily oppressed. We get that word in verse 7. That's true, it was true of ancient cultures, and it's true on up into even our own culture today. I said last week that when we think of biblical justice, we should think human flourishing and reconciliation. That these are the, the two the two ideas, the big ideas that when the Bible talks about justice, that's what it's about. Human flourishing and reconciliation, reconciliation to God, that God takes care of our sin that separates from him and then uh, us from him and then God uh, moves us together. So that uh, in, in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, there is no slave or free, there is no male or free ma- female, Galatians 3. This is what justice is for. Flourishing and reconciliation are what justice is linked to throughout the Bible. And with this psalm today, we begin to link the justice that God is, which we saw last week in Exodus 34, with the justice he does. And we have a little bit of what that looks like here. Things like feeding the hungry, verse 7. Lifting up the lonely, verse 8. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the psalm says that God does these things, but we know that God does these things through people. 
Uh, so far as I've ever seen, God has never dropped a food pantry from the sky in order to feed the hungry, but he has inspired, he has filled his people with his spirit to go and do these kinds of things for people in need. We're looking at a psalm. This is the only psalm we're going to look at uh, in this series. We'll go to the prophets next, then we'll go to Jesus, and then we'll go to the apostles. So we're, we're sort of doing a sequential way through the Bible, beginning in Exodus, now the Psalms. Next week, Isaiah 58, if you want to look ahead. And then we'll look at a passage in Luke where Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath. And then we'll look at the apostles, namely the vision of the sheet that Peter had, which is repeated three times in the book of Acts, meaning, get this, and then when Peter is with Paul, or uh, in Galatians context, when Paul confronts Peter, because when, when the Jews were around, he would keep kosher. And when the Jews weren't around, uh, he wouldn't. And, and Paul, very interestingly in his confrontation says, when I saw that he was not in keeping with the gospel, when I saw that he was treating people not in a gospel, through a gospel lens, I confronted him to his face. We'll look at that the last Sunday, the first Sunday in December, last Sunday of this series. But in other Psalms, we're looking at a Psalm, and just to get a sense of where you are in the Psalms, the Psalms talk frequently about justice. Uh, you've got uh, justice in the Psalms presented in terms of rescuing the needy. That's Psalm uh, 82. Not taking advantage of the vulnerable, not conniving against the vulnerable to do them harm, to take what the little bit that's theirs uh, for uh, ourselves. That's Psalm 94. The just don't kill the innocent. That's Psalm 10. Uh, the just will not speak out of two sides of our mouth. That's presented as a justice category by Psalm 28. The just do not love violence. That's Psalm 11, the just are for peace. Those who love justice reject systems that oppress people. That's Psalm 58 and also here in Psalm 146, verse 7. I'm going to come back to the oppressed in sermons to follow. We're just moving into this. As we go each week, we get more and more specific. So we'll come back actually to Psalm 146.7 in future weeks and talk about the oppressed. But this is a Psalm 146, a Psalm of praise to the God who does justly. And I want to take it from two angles today. The long and the short of biblical justice. The long and the short of it. By the long of it, I mean how doing justly for those who need it most increases praise to God. And don't minimize the role of praise among Christians and the value God puts on his own praise. Praise is something the Bible pictures as covering the earth, as rising to God from all corners of the earth. Praise is a way that the earth itself holds the sound of the people of God. All the people of God who've ever lived on the earth, it's as if our praise is held onto by the earth and still comes up to the Lord. I'm calling that the long of biblical justice because it takes place all through biblical history and on through all the centuries that have passed up into the present moment. God's name is still being praised on this earth. That's the long of biblical justice. By the short of it, I mean meeting the needs of those most in need. 
as they come to us, as we discover who they are, where they are, what they need, the people of God take an interest in doing justly these ways, the psalm gives us and other passages of scripture. We take this, we are interested in this as an outworking of our redemption, not for our redemption. We don't do these things so that God will approve and, and, and accept us. We do these things because God has redeemed us and brought us into his family he has treated us these ways, writ large, if you will, macro level, and then on the micro level, we each and all have opportunities, invitations, responsibilities to meet people who need us to do justly for them. So first, the long of it, and then we'll hit the short of it toward the end of the message. The long of it, how doing justly increases God's praise which the family of God, the people of God, love to hear. The people of God want to give praise to God. So the psalm begins, verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Verse 2, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being, all of life. And the rest of the psalm fleshes out why I will praise God. It fleshes it out literally with real flesh and blood people for whom God executes justice, verse 7, for the oppressed and on whom God works his justice, verse 9, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And we praisers of God are told, not only does God execute justice for those who need it, and not only does God hold those who are responsible for their pain and suffering accountable, the psalm says both, every, most every context of justice in the voluminous uh, way this subject treated in scripture gives us both. But we praisers of God, we are joined in the chorus of verses one and two. We join, when somebody says praise the Lord, we say I'm there, I'm for that, I want that. If the spirit of God is living in us, and we praisers of God are told, verse 3, here's a contrast. Praise the Lord, but verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, by which he means governing authorities. Now there is a son of man, capital S, capital M, in whom there is salvation, one, he being Jesus. But here in verses 3 and 4, as you're looking at the psalm, note verses 3 and 4, the psalmist has in view those who govern. Now we know from biblical teaching elsewhere, particularly in the New Testament, we are to pray for governing authorities. We are to respect governing authorities, but we see here we are also not to put our trust in them. Even if they do justly for us and for others. The princes, as mentioned here, verses 3 and 4, governing authorities, nothing suggests in context that they're denying justice, though many rulers have and still do. But, so we're not told, don't put your trust in princes because they're corrupt or they're crooked. We're told, don't do it because they're human. And thereby, they are limited in what they can do. Even the best among leaders cannot bear the full weight of human expectation in regard to help and hope. They can't, but the Lord can. 
And that's what the psalmist is calling us to recognize. Verses five and six, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse six, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Princes have a dominion in one little locality and if they are conquerors, maybe a lot of localities, but they don't have it all. The Lord has it all. And he keeps faith forever, last line in verse 6. And then verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Last verse in the psalm, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, God himself, the God of everything, yes, he located to Israel back in ancient times. And that's why we get verse 5, the God of Jacob. In verse 10, Zion, these are Israel place names. This is Israel's songbook. But God has never been limited to just that people, that place, that time. His his intention has always been been to draw people to himself from everywhere. In fact, when you look at how Israel was geographically positioned, it was in the center of the ancient world. All of the trade routes went through the country that belonged to the ethnic people of God, and thereby you had in Israel the reality of the sojourner. Everybody's passing through this country that belongs to God uniquely, and as they're passing through, some are staying, some are meeting God. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. Now, sojourner is another word for immigrant. And the law of Moses thought of them and gave God's ethnic people, the Jews, back in that era, instructions as to how the foreign-born person among them who'd immigrated to the people of God in the land area of Israel and or Judah, the law of Moses gave instructions for how the foreign-born person was to be treated. Give thought to their flourishing, God says, to his people back then continues in the same spirit in what he's doing in the church and bringing Jew and Gentile together someone from everyone but God says through the law to the people of Israel do not deny your sojourners the opportunity to flourish among you unless you want to be opposing me that's the law and the, and the prophets then. The prophets are covenant enforcers. So the prophets are always bringing people. We think of the prophets always looking into some you know, crystal ball and seeing the future. They did very little of, of looking into the future. Mostly what they did was bring people back to what God had already given them. Because the people of God frequently went astray from it. And so the law was emphatic about the way the sojourner was to be treated. The foreign born person among you. And the prophets were emphatic about this. And the sojourner, verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners, just to take this line as an example, the immigrant is part of the quartet of the vulnerable. Again, that's a a phrase, comes from a scholar named Nicholas Wolterstorff, he coined it, and the reason I'm using it, not just because it's good, but just about every resource I've been reading for this series quotes Nicholas Wolterstorff's Uh, the quartet of the vulnerable. He locates it specifically in Zechariah chapter 7 verse 10. But he says what's there in Zechariah is representative of all through the Old and New Testaments. These four people, groups, come into view. The widow, the orphan, called the fatherless here in verse 9. The sojourner, also known as an immigrant. And the poor, 
each and all of whom are here in in Psalm 146, but they're also in the law, they're also in the prophets, and they're all through the New Testament, and they are not just mentioned, they are emphasized, and they are even championed. Why? Because they're vulnerable people. They're the most vulnerable people. They are in situations of life in which there can be more languishing than flourishing for them. And so the people of God are called to remember them. We're called to be the people who give thought to them. Not just a a passing thought, but a a kind of strategic, tactical thought that translates into actions for their flourishing. And this is so important to God throughout the scriptures. Psalm 146 is just, a, is just one base among many we could have landed in to see this. But when you get the drivetrain of this throughout scripture, those who are vulnerable are so important to God that if we don't remember them and we don't prioritize their needs, we are actually taking the way of the wicked ourselves. And verse 9 says, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin In fact, when you look at biblical history, the times when God opposed his own people, did you hear me? The times when God opposed his own people are the times when they were the most out of touch with the vulnerable, either ignoring them, which is one way to take the way of the wicked. Um, The way of the wicked will bypass the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and the poor, just them as being representatives. The wicked ignore them unless they're exploiting them. That also happens. But ignoring and exploiting are both evil. So so to get before the Lord and to say, yeah, I know I just kind of looked the other way and I'm sorry. It's, It's on the same parallel with him as the one who said, who says, yeah, I exploited them. Sure, they were cheap labor. I used them. God looks at ignoring and exploiting on the same level. That's hard. That's tough to hear. What does this have to do with praise? <laughs> you, ever, um, you ever read Amos chapter 5? Sticky pages of your Bible. Sticky because nobody ever turns there. Listen to this. This is a prophet of God, the prophet Amos. This is from Amos chapter 5. Just listen to it. I hate, I despise your feasts, God says, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Even though you're doing the law, you're doing what the law tells me to do. You're coming at the appointed days and feasts, and you're giving me the the firstborn of your flock. You're following the letter. Amos is channeling here what God says to the people Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll on like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The prophet Amos. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I ask the question, what does this have to do with praise? Take away from me the noise of your songs. 
I'm not going to listen anymore to the melodies that you make and the psalms you write. Why not, God? Because in the context, if you go back a few verses, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. The gate was the common area where everybody passed. The whole community knew about the gate. And God says, if you're not doing justly, if you're not paying attention to those most vulnerable around you, God says, I don't want your praise. I don't want it. Let that sink in. Jesus echoed this. Jesus echoed the prophet Amos when he said what he said about salt losing its saltiness. Remember Jesus using that analogy? It's kind of weird for us because we don't think of salt like a fertilizer. And that's in ancient times how they were using salt. Salt was not just, we think of table salt and salt as a preservative, but it was also, it had a, it had a fertilizing property to it and there's a place in the gospels where God says if salt loses its saltiness and by salt he means his people you can't even put it on manure how would you like to hear the son of God say to you you would ruin manure it's not good for anything literally it's not good for anything the people of God can never be good for nothing Likewise with praise. C.S. Lewis said, praise is inner health made audible. (laughs) Inner health made audible. And the psalmist of Psalm 146 here connects, look at what he does in Psalm 146. He connects the inner health. Praise the Lord. That comes out of inner health. Praise the Lord. He connects that inner health to outer justice making and justice doing. He praises the God of justice for doing justly, but the psalmist wouldn't offer this praise unless he was doing justly also. Let's think again of the princes. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes, and the son of man whom no salvation when his breath departs. Verse 4, he returns to the earth on that very day his plans perish. Put not your trust in princes. The vulnerable do that. They often look to princes to help them, the most vulnerable in society, the government. They put their hope in government services. However, and social science bears this out over and over and over again in studies, it's the ministries, it's the people of God, it's churches who remember the vulnerable do greater good cumulatively and more effectively. And why is that? It's not just because government help is weighted down by bureaucracy. It's because the people of God in Christ have an internal motivation to see praise to God increase. To catalyze more praise for God. To participate in it ourselves. Now, we can be too dependent on princes ourselves. To be in Christ, one of the wonderful things about being in Christ is that it liberates us from having to put our trust in princes. As another psalm puts it, Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As another prophet puts it, uh, Zechariah chapter 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, the church not the government, 
The church is the only organization on earth with divine power coursing through us to give God what he wants, obedience, even to courageously obey God. God's power is available to us to do and be for those most in need so that, what's the reason why? So that the praise of God increases. And one of the benefits of praising God One of the benefits of praise increasing is it dispels fear like nothing else. Praise emboldens the people of God. You know, a lot of times thinking about this context with princes, governing authorities, a lot of times we put our trust in princes out of fear, including fear of the vulnerable, like the immigrant. But to fear him or her is actually the way of the wicked that God brings to ruin. I know what you're thinking. Oh, sounds like you're for open borders, Cole. I am not. I believe nations should be sovereign over their borders and enforce immigration law humanely. But I also believe the church has a dedicated interest in promoting the flourishing of people as we find them as they come to us, regardless of their circumstances. And we spend way too much energy opinionating over people in need, and a lot of that opinionating has fear of them at its root. We are told in Scripture, am I talking to the church right now? We are told in Scripture that we have not been given a spirit of fear. If you're afraid today, that does not come from God Almighty. I'm not saying there aren't frightening realities in the world. There are. I'm not saying there aren't things that concern us rightly. There are. I know everyone's feeling uncertain and a lot is up in the air, it feels like. But to live fearful, to live in fear, and to seek to justify that fear and to validate that fear is not from God. And that just isn't preacher speak. This is our faith I'm preaching to you right now. Our faith is not afraid. Look at it this way. See, this is why this is dangerous. If you fear the immigrant, you'll find ways to fear even the orphan. It's like a domino effect. If I fear one member of the quartet of the vulnerable, just to take these four, I'll find ways to fear all of them. I'll fear everyone with needs. And the thing about fear is you self-protect, you bunker, you won't take risks. Worse, you may never actually obey God in the way he wants obedience to look. There are a lot of men and women of God today telling us what they believe the greatest threat to the church is. Some of them are making a lot of money at it. And they usually say it's progressive politics. I am no fan of progressive politics, but let me clearly say the greatest threat to the church today is always our own sin. Don't point to somebody else's sin and say that's the greatest threat to the church. The greatest threat to the church is our resistance to what God tells us clearly to do with our lives in Christ. Amazing that we could ever fear the orphan the fatherless, but we do. Somebody thinks about foster care, considers it, rolls it around in their mind, 
but then talks themselves out of it because, you know, what if that kid has a lot of problems? I don't want to deal with a lot of problems. You know what? That kid will have a lot of problems. And, and if they don't have a lot of personal problems, they'll come from a family that I guarantee you has a lot of problems. And that, and that, and that family's problems stick to that child. I have, I have in, in squaring up with this in my own life, uh, I, I dealt with panic attacks over this, but I got through it because God. But you have problems too that they'll have to deal with. You think they really want to be in your home? <laughs> no. Why don't we help them? Can I ask this question? Do you realize that Tennessee, the state you reside in and call home, the state that we love, do you realize that Tennessee, according to a 2019 study, has the largest population of evangelicals in the country? Alabama's number two. Finally, Tennessee beats Alabama in something. We have more evangelicals than any other state. There's 7,000 plus kids in this state in foster care. May I ask where the church is? Can I ask that question? Am I going to hate email for that? Can I ask that question? What's going on? Uh, and we, when we talk about being pro-life, come on, folks. You can't have it two ways. What's keeping us from them? Our fear. Largely, it's our fear. You ever, you ever gone on a search to discover God's will? How do I know what the will of God is? You know, and you meet with your pastor, and what if he says to you in response, well, we know it's God's will to care for the orphan. What are you doing about that? And you say, well, you know, I, 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 that's not for everybody to do. Okay, fine, I agree to a point. No, it, it won't look like every Christian home takes on a foster child, No. But can we stop the charade that we're really so interested in the will of God? Because to be interested in the will of God is to already know what it is. It's not a search. He's already told us. Get involved. Some way, somehow, somewhere with the most vulnerable. You are not hearing scolding from me right now. Please, you are hearing passion. Rescue them, God says. Protect them. Welcome them. Provide for them. God says, look, just open yourself to me. When I was having a panic attack last October walking around Landers Ford and Collierville to calm myself down at night, thinking about jumping into foster care, and I was hyperventilating, and my sweet wife was thinking, what have I asked him to do, you know? Because we'd just gone through the class on childhood trauma and what kids who've gone through trauma often have going on when they come into your home. And I'm thinking, Am I, I've already got problems in my family. Why would I want more? And I'm having this panic attack and it's like the Lord puts his hand on you and says, just open yourself to me and let me extract from you everything in you that opposes me, everything in you that keeps you from trusting me. God's already involved with the vulnerable. Of course he is. Where else would you expect a just God to be? And where God is, what I've been learning the last couple of years is that where God is is where I want to be because I want to be with him. He says over and over, the vulnerable are who I'm with. 
the oppressed or, or who I'm with. He's, and he's there, I think, so often. We're, 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 God is there just waiting on the people of God to join him. He's not coercive. And as we do join him, we give ourselves to what promotes human flourishing and reconciliation to God and others in the interest of justice, what the Bible calls justice, we increase his praise now and for the long run. That's the long of biblical justice, now the short of it. And that's going to take a couple of minutes on this because really the short of it is going to extend into other sermons. Because the short of it is, uh, is getting us into the kinds of things we do. The short of it being the immediate the people with needs as we meet them, the tangible forms. Justice is very practical. It takes tangible forms. It's not a theory. We tend to almost think of justice exclusively in terms of criminal justice. Expand that out. Justice is about practical help, tangible filling in gaps, not letting people fall through cracks. No, God doesn't drop food pantries from the sky, but he gives food to the hungry. Verse 7. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Verse 8, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. That's the orphan. But by the, the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. God is pleased to use us as his instruments. This is the way he's organized it. Particularly in the meeting of needs like food and shelter, companionship for the lonely, but also advocacy for those oppressed. And again, uh, we'll come back to oppressed in other sermons. I'll address the whole uh, thing of social justice and, and how the debates that rage around that. But the psalmists here gives tangible expressions of justice in action for those most in need. And when he says God does these things, he's thinking about God doing these things through his people. And it's just a few things here in Psalm 146. It's certainly not exhaustive, but it's representative. And when you look at Psalm 146 and the, the way justice looks, you see that, well, some things start to come into view. Well, justice does no harm. Uh, justice will sacrifice and risk rather than bunker and self-protect. Justice will identify with, with controversial things and people sometimes if the larger objective of giving praise to God is what needs to be met. And you know, those most in need of justice, they're right in front of us. They live among us. We live among them. Just raise your hand. God will bring them to you. And no, none of us can do everything. No, we can't do it all. There are always more needs around us than any of us can meet. Not every need is a call. I believe that. But what about you? When it comes to those most in need, where have you put an oar in these waters? What can you do? Maybe you're still on the shore. Maybe you're afraid as soon as you get out there, your canoe will capsize. What then? I knew it. I knew when we stepped into this, it would go wrong. I kind of have that mentality. Get back in the canoe. Learn wisdom. Grow in resilience and courage. Keep serving until the Lord brings you home. The actions justice take are not done for their own sake. They're not even done as vehicles for the gospel. Hear me clearly on this. As important as that is, we're not doing justly just for the potential evangelistic value. 
The reason the Lord loves the righteous, verse 8, see that line there? The Lord loves the righteous. And the reason he does is not because we've earned his love through being good people and doing good things. I don't want you to get out of here with that idea. The reason the Lord loves the righteous, verse 8, is because through the righteous, the ones the Lord loves, the people of God, God accomplishes his justice aims, which he also loves. He loves justice. And because that in turn, when we do what we love with those we love, what happens? Beauty and joy and sufficiency, God's sufficiency begins to spread. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, which seems to be the core essence of his teaching. When you take the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just the first thing he taught. It's the thing he kept coming back to. He preached that sermon multiple times in multiple places. And um, he said, let your light so shine before others that they see your good works. And what do they do? Come shake your hand. Congrats. Thank you very much. No. They give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a conduit. That's part of Jesus' core teaching. Why? I told you last Sunday that joy, justice in practice is joyful and beautiful. Every act of biblical justice contains seeds that turn into flowers in unexpected places. Flowers growing up through the cracks in the sidewalk, as it were, in hard places. Uh, I loved, uh, there's a picture on on Twitter this week. I don't follow the guy. I don't know who the guy is, but the author of the book sent a picture. I'm picturing it now. And it was at what looked like all of these gang members holding up this book about the Christian life with the little guy who looked nothing like them in the middle. He'd been taking them through this study. And the author was like, that was worth all I put in writing the book, seeing that group go through this, a group you'd never, you'd never consider would would do this the short of of biblical justice is that every act of it contains seeds that turn into flowers in unexpected places and God loves that to meet needs out of love for God not not because somebody has shamed me into it shaming doesn't work guilting doesn't work conviction may take you through guilt but it's got to get you out on the other side because nobody's motivated by guilt we're motivated by the fact that God has done something beautiful and joyful and sufficient for me and he's made my heart soft to the way that his word not only draws me but also corrects me. The short of biblical justice, it's no social gospel but the gospel has true social implications. Absolutely it does. It starts with God and the way that God treats people who should be objects of his retribution and his wrath but we're turned into objects of reconciliation with him. And out of that reconciliation, the joy and the beauty of it, we get to put ourselves where God is. We get to join him and follow where he's going and what he's doing. We give ourselves to what God is giving himself to and using us. It's not do justly and maybe I'll accept you. It's do justly as I've done for you. I've shown you the way, God says. Now will you meet me where I am? Will you follow me where I go? He doesn't threaten us into this. He invites us. Grace is the motivation. And it's an invitation to worship when you get involved in justice matters with people who have needs, 
who need to flourish instead of languish. It's an invitation to worship. And the people who care about worship are the same people who care about praise. God has made us objects of his love, not just for what he does in and for us in our relationship with him, God and me. We're objects of his love for what he wants to do through us. And what he wants to do through us is bring all that joy and beauty that he has home to us as well as to others. Stand with me. Let's pray, sing, and be dismissed. Father, we thank you that we can sing now out of hearts that have been adjusted and affected by you. And we pray, Father, you will do even more work in us so that you can do work through us. Father, don't let us be people who merely watch the world and the church go by. Lord, make us people who want to see your praise increase. Make us people who are involved in the long and the short of biblical justice, that we have a a vision for, for flourishing. And certainly, Lord, if we flourish, that we would somehow, some way, somewhere, be able to bless another with that. We can't do everything. Lord, don't let the effect of this sermon be discouragement or or kicking ourselves because we should be doing more. Some of us are doing a lot and we don't need to necessarily do any more. But some of us, Lord, need to find this gear. And Lord, I pray you'll help us, um, all of us, as we want to be who you've created us in Christ to be people whose good works bring greater glory and praise to your Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.